Support for Terrestrial comes from Westland Distillery. Seattle-based Westland uses locally grown barley to create new varietals of malt never before used in whiskey. The result is an American single malt whiskey that reflects the unique qualities of the Pacific Northwest. To learn more, visit westlanddistillery.com. What if you looked at the world around you and you saw where things are headed on this planet and you said to yourself, you know what, I'm out. I want to go somewhere new. I want to start fresh. I want to live in a controlled, safe environment of my own, and I want to handpick the people I'm going to do it with. Well, back in the 90s, a group of people did something kind of like that. They were researchers and visionaries, and they built sort of a giant, really sophisticated terrarium. And they decided to shut themselves inside it for years at a time, all in the name of trying to understand how all the systems that make up life on Earth fit together to protect our environment and, if needed, to bring it elsewhere, to other planets or space. They called it Biosphere 2, because Earth is, of course, the original biosphere. But for the purposes of this story, we'll refer to it simply as the Biosphere, because as far as we know, it's the only project of its kind. Jonathan Hirsch, the producer on our show, got totally fascinated by this story, and he's been digging into what happened inside. So, Jonathan, you've got a photo of the Biosphere, right? Let's send it to me. Yeah, okay, all right. I'm sending you the photo of the Biosphere. And I am opening it. And it is awesome. It is like a <laughs> castle in space in the future. It's this big dome of steel and glass in the middle of the desert. <laughs> yeah, or like a castle in space on a TV show in the 1970s. You know what I mean? Exactly. But it just leaves me wondering, Jonathan, why would a bunch of people choose to live inside of this thing? And I mean this respectfully, but it's basically like a big snow globe in the desert. Yeah, well, what happened was this group of researchers, some of whom were scientists, really wanted to figure out how the whole Earth works, how all the systems on the planet fit together, which at the time was kind of a revolutionary idea. Because instead of studying each system individually, they had this idea to sort of replicate part of the Earth's biosphere in a much smaller, controlled environment and live inside. Wait, so by controlled, you mean like completely sealed off from the outside world? Yeah, exactly. Almost like a mini Earth, because they thought it would let them better study the way the real Earth works. But that was just the beginning of the story because the biosphere was a lot more than a science experiment. It was also a test of how people live together under pressure. I'm Ashley Ahern, and you're listening to Terrestrial, a show that explores the choices we make in a world we've changed. Today, we're going to find out what happens when a group of researchers shut themselves in this biosphere and attempt to deeply study many of the Earth's ecosystems, from rainforest to oceans to coral reefs, all underneath a glass dome on one three-acre chunk of land in the Arizona desert. Thanks so much for listening to Terrestrial, and because you are probably all very cool people who want to hear about other cool podcasts, allow me to tell you about one that I dig. It's called Here Be Monsters from KCRW, and it's about the unknown, like unsolved historical mysteries, otherworldly creatures, conspiracy theories, and it was created by two of my good friends, Jeff Entman and Bethany Denton. And in one episode this season, you'll hear from radio amateurs during the Cold War who were obsessed with researching obscure number stations. Rumor has it that spies may have been using these coded stations to communicate. 
which might also be how your brain feels after you listen to your first episode of Here Be Monsters. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the show. So the biosphere, which still exists today, sits in Oracle, Arizona, just outside of Tucson. The people who built it say it's the largest closed, ecologically engineered system ever made. Laser Vantillo is a mechanical engineer, and he was there for the construction in 1987. And so as you come over that hill, you would see the glistening of solar panels, uh, the staging area, which would be greenhouses. We had already built a small uh, biosphere, if you like, you would see many cranes uh, craning in big trees as well as pieces of glass to, as we were closing because we had to bring in the trees before we actually put the full ceiling on, so we left little spaces open. Um, and you see that myriad of activity of plumbers and electricians and uh, these integrated uh, systems people, uh, computers, uh, Hewlett Packard was, was there on, on site installing uh, their computer systems. So it was, um, it was a hustle and bustle of people creating a new world. A new world its creators thought should contain all these elements of the world outside. Literally, ocean, farmland, savanna, rainforest, pygmy goats from Nigeria, corals from the Yucatan. But underneath this new planet, instead of dirt, there was a laboratory outfitted with sensors to measure everything up above. Nitrogen levels in the soil, oxygen levels in the atmosphere. We had uh, 200,000 gallons of fresh water that was cycled throughout the whole biosphere with rain systems that were computerized, computerized rain systems for the rainforest. The person who first came up with the idea was this guy named John Allen. Back in the 60s, Allen ran an avant-garde theater troupe, then a collective farm in New Mexico, then a ship called the Heraclitus that sailed all over the globe, and then the biosphere. According to Laser and others who worked with him, Alan was always talking about how everything on the planet was inextricably connected, in ways people couldn't fully understand. He was one of those charismatic leaders with big ideas, inspired people. He used the term synergy a lot. Gay Alling first met John Allen on a flight to Sri Lanka. Gay was finishing up a dissertation from Yale on marine mammals. John Allen was traveling to meet the crew of the Heraclitus, which was docked there. Gay says his ideas resonated. But what was happening politically was, of course, the Cold War. Um, there was apartheid. There was uh, the, the wall, the German wall that came down shortly after. And Gay, like Allen, was asking big questions. We knew there was a number of people who understood that already our planet was being changed decisively and direct, directly in the wrong way, that our health support system, our biosphere, our ecology was being eroded. And that was the milieu that John came up with the idea of what we have to do is study it. And the only way you can study it as a totality is to make it into a laboratory. And once they were in Sri Lanka, Gay went to visit the ship. Laser was already on board. So I, to me, it was adventure. I was really into exploration. 
Growing up in Belgium, he'd been involved in the environmental movement. Then, as a young man, he hitchhiked from New York to Panama. And in Panama, he became fascinated by how different ecosystems were connected to one another. After hearing about Alan's project, he tracked down the ship in the South Pacific. Then Gay decided to come on board in Sri Lanka. Less than two years later, in Arizona, construction started on the biosphere. Three acres of land, enclosed in a glass dome. And for me, it was a perfect fit when I, when I heard about the biosphere. And in March 1991, Gay, Laser, and six other people took on Alan's biggest project yet. Two years sealed inside the biosphere. By this point, Alan had raised tens of millions of dollars. The project was a joint venture between Alan's team and Texas billionaire Edward Bass. The crew hosted a press conference, all eight of them in matching red jumpsuits. They looked like astronauts or ghostbusters. They smiled, waved, cameras flashed, and then one by one, they entered the biosphere. Well, as we closed the door to the airlock, what went through my mind was, I hope I did not forget any spare parts. I was in, I was oh, in charge. wallet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was in charge of, of the technosphere. And um, so that was went through my mind. Um, uh, yeah, then day one, suddenly, you know, it dawned on me, we're in here and the, the two years are starting. And the enormity of that historic moment um, was just like ringing throughout my my body it was palpable and I felt we had we were totally prepared which is different gay says than having everything under control if we had known all about our biosphere building biosphere two would have been really easy we didn't know and we didn't know as we walked in the door how a biosphere works we still don't really know During those first two weeks, Abigail and Laser said life on the inside was exciting and tremendously challenging to keep all those ecosystems going and stay alive yourself. Feeding eight crew members with what you could grow with zero help from the outside wasn't easy. If I opened my refrigerator at home before at Biosphere 2, it'd be full with all kinds of goodies. When we opened it at inside bias here too there would be hardly anything in there except what we harvested that day and so it was more you know directly from harvest to our kitchen and we would we would uh, cook it and, and eat it which of course might not sound so crazy today you've got the local food movement foraging but they weren't just going local and harvesting all their own food they were doing it while living on three acres inside a glass dome and on top of that The whole project was based on the premise that the diversity of all these different ecosystems could somehow be contained and studied under that dome. In other words, it involved a huge leap of faith and also some hubris. But it wasn't long before all those ideas started to be challenged. One major challenge was the um, oxygen start dropping. So at a certain point, oxygen level was at 14.2%. And... um, it sounds really low, but that I'm is not. low. Yeah, and so the planet is twenty-one percent. Solving the oxygen issue became critical, and within days, the crew split into two camps. 
Those who wanted to keep the biosphere locked for two years no matter what. And those that didn't, because they were worried people might get hurt. Eventually, the team decided to bring in a truck that would pump oxygen into the biosphere. But this was, this why Biosphere 2 should have really stayed closed for a hundred years to get us. Ecology is always long term. A tree, you know, a healthy tree takes 30, 40 years to grow. So we were in infancy with Biosphere, where all the elements, all the trace elements uh, would end up, say, in the rivers, in the soil. This was all long term. This was just the first. This, our first two years was a shakedown mission. Our coffee trees were so small that uh, we only had 24 cups of coffees for each of us once a month. So all these things... Uh, that sounds, was in there. That sounds like a recipe for disaster in my house. <laughs> yes. For Gay and Laser, the importance of their work was clear. When the first two-year mission was over, they still felt the challenges they faced inside the biosphere could help find solutions to all the problems outside, on Earth. And in the end, Gay says, it wasn't isolation that brought the project to a halt. It was shut down by power and money. It was sh shut down by guns. It was shut down by a takeover that um, destroyed it. When we come back, the story of the second and final mission of the biosphere. Support for Terrestrial comes from Westland Distillery. Westland is leading the emerging new category of American single malt whiskey. Distilled, matured, and bottled in the heart of the Pacific Northwest, a region known for its innovative spirit, their whiskeys bring a new and distinctly American voice to the world of single malt. To learn more, visit westlanddistillery.com. Support for Terrestrial also comes from ReachNow Mobility Services by BMW. ReachNow members have access to hundreds of BMW and mini vehicles for flexible one-way trips around Seattle. Listen to your favorite public radio station in comfort and style as you drive to your favorite destination. Don't feel like driving? No problem. ReachNow will pick you up and drop you off. It's the best way to get to the people and places you love. Learn more at reachnow.com. Pascal Maslin was 22 years old when she boarded the Heraclitus. It was an incredible life. You, I was on the boat for four years during the training period. In total, I've spent eight years on this ship. During their time on the Heraclitus, Laser and Pascal became close. Pascal says that after Laser finished the first biosphere mission, he recommended her to be his replacement on the next one, as the person in charge of technical systems. One day, John Allen called Pascal into his office to talk, and... He said, you're in, kiddo. She'd been preparing for years for this opportunity and was thrilled. Mission 2 was the Biospherian's chance to build off of the successes and failures of the first mission. But she was also concerned. The pressure was on. Ed Bass, the main backer of the project, had hoped that the work inside the biosphere would help generate profits the way innovations made during space missions, like solar panels, had helped fund NASA projects. After all, millions of dollars had been invested. Then there was the fact that people from the first mission, like Laser and Gay, would be managing those in the second mission. So between that and all the money invested, 
there was increasing pressure to show the biosphere was a success. And even before she went in, Pascal felt like the project had changed. And in the first mission, there was a lot of individual attention, um, you know, where people were personified, look at the biospherians, whereas in the second mission, it wasn't like that at all. We were, you know, we were like bus drivers, uh, you know, going in there to drive the bus under the um, auspices of the first mission people. Also, some of the problems from the first mission hadn't been fixed. Take food. The crew subsisted on a yield from that same small plot of land, which still wasn't producing much. Yeah, probably 12-hour days, seven days a week, and, um, and exhausted, and not enough food, and uh, not enough of the food that I like. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, and you were working hard all day. I mean, there were times when you're standing at the bottom of the stairs, and you knew there was a cup full of peanuts waiting for you in the kitchen, and did you, was it really worth the energy to climb up those stairs and get that cup full of peanuts? But the crew inside, says Pascal, figured, okay, these are just challenges, just like with the first mission. Then came Easter weekend. At first I thought it was an April Fool's joke. Because it was a holiday, most of the management had left town. One morning, the crew inside the biosphere had finished breakfast when they received a video call. It was the two consultants Bass had recently hired to audit the biosphere budget. Martin Bowen and another consultant, a guy named Steve Bannon, we got called into mission control and there was this v-shaped table with a camera on us and a big television screen and so we were sitting there in front of martin bowen and steve bannon and everybody saying that they had taken over the biosphere and the old management team had been removed and they were in control now yeah steve bannon the same steve bannon who would later run breitbart news and serve as an advisor to President Donald Trump. According to Ed Bass, the Biospherians were chronically over budget. And the kinds of innovations that would make the Biosphere a good investment, they weren't happening fast enough. So we brought on Bowen and Bannon. There was radio silence. Yeah, I was uh, shocked, confused, thought, oh, this is a mistake. This is a j-. In the beginning, I thought it was a joke. Bass had also asked a Texas district court judge to approve a temporary restraining order against several members of the management, which was granted. So around the time of that first video call from Mission Control to the Biosphere, armed federal marshals and local police arrived at the compound to enforce the restraining order. Later, Steve Bannon and Martin Bowen met again with crew members via another video call. Pascal says they were told there had been questionable financial dealings among management accusations that were never prosecuted. They were also told the mission would continue as planned. I thought that, you know, all this was going to go to court and it was all going to be resolved and these people were going to get back in their positions and everything was going to, you know, go on pretty much as normal. You know, a few of the key positions in the top might change, but Overall, you you know, I mean, who else knew how to run a biosphere? And it seemed to me that the aim of this takeover was to take the biosphere off the people that built it and and to stop the bunch to close the biosphere down. And that's exactly what they did. By this point, over $200 million had been invested in the project yet it hadn't yielded any profit for its investors. But the old management wasn't ready to give up. 
Gay, Laser, and John Allen were in Japan when this all happened. John Allen's memoir, he describes collapsing to the ground in tears of grief when he heard the news. As for Gay and Laser, they got on a plane to Arizona and arrived shortly after the takeover. According to Pascal, they parked their car off-site and hiked through the desert, reaching the biosphere through back roads. And then they came into the biosphere that they opened all the doors and then the lungs are set up. The lungs were a mechanized system that controlled air pressure. When it got hot, the lungs expanded. When it got cold, the lungs contracted. And if the lungs expanded too far, if it got too hot, the lungs would tighten and activate a hammer, which would break the glass. Basically, it was a big stop button. So Laser went in there and pulled that chain and break, broke the glass. So he ended the experiment, is what happened. At this point, it was about 4 a.m. And Pascal says Laser calls her on the phone. And he said, wake up the other biospherians, have breakfast, and come out of the biosphere. Um, this, oh, this is Laser Vantillo. I'm your supervisor. Um, have breakfast, come out of the biosphere. And so he hung up. So we all came running out, banging on people's doors. Um, everyone came out in their pajamas or whatever. And, um, and sure enough, the doors were wide open. But Pascal wasn't ready to leave. After all, she'd been waiting years to be there. Picked up the phone. I called up uh, the guard, at the, somebody manning the phones at the entrance to the biosphere. I called them up and asked for uh, Martin Bowen. I got, and I told Martin, you know, they've broken, gain laser, are on site, they've broken up the bar, they've broken into the biosphere, um, please come down and close the doors. And um, I know, I think I was pretty hysterical, I said things like, I'm on your side now, and all kinds of, you know, I was hysterical. <laughs> Did anybody leave? No. Everybody stayed when they tried to do that? Yeah. Laser says he does not remember that conversation with Pascal. And both he and Gay say they were following guidelines established at the project's outset, which stipulated that any time there was a major change, everyone involved needed to agree to it. Both Gay and Laser say they were not trying to influence the decision of the crew members inside. Criminal charges were filed against Gay and Laser for damages that resulted from breaking the glass. Haskell says the charges were exaggerated. You know, they tried to point to millions of dollars worth of damage. You know, it was a 12-inch piece of, 12-inch diameter round piece of glass. I mean, you could go to Stroschneider's and get it for $6 today. I mean, that, that's the amount of physical damage that they did. Everyone I spoke to for this story was hesitant to comment on Steve Bannon's involvement in the project. But I did talk to Pascal about where Bannon ended up years later, going from managing the biosphere to playing a critical role in the first year of the Trump presidency. He's a master of hostile takeovers, isn't he? Um, and, you know, at least at the beginning of this administration, it looked like he was orchestrating it. So, the, you know, are we having a hostile takeover? Some people that would say that we are. Bannon is, of course, no longer a part of the Trump administration. And shortly after leaving, he told Bloomberg News that he was, quote, going to war for Trump against his opponents on Capitol Hill, in the media, and in corporate America, end quote. And again, just to be clear, Bannon was brought on as the interim CEO of the Biosphere by Ed Bass. As for the Biosphere, after several more months, the second mission was terminated. That was, um, 
yeah, I just couldn't believe it. Eventually, the facility was sold to Columbia University, who later sold it to the University of Arizona, made it open to the public. Large doors were installed for visitors to take Biosphere tours. There's a gift shop, the Biosphere t-shirts, Biosphere postcards, Biosphere toys. The university uses the facility for research. But the living quarters where Gay, Laser, and Pascal once lived are empty. I talked to crew members from both Biosphere missions. Gay and Laser now study and restore coral reefs as a measure against the effects of climate change. Pascal runs an energy auditing business. Two others, Jane Pointer and Tabor McCallum, helped found a company that creates technologies that allow humans to survive in extreme conditions, like underwater or outer space. No matter what mission a person was part of, most kept on exploring the limits of how we humans interact with the Earth. But during their time in the biosphere, they got not only to witness all these ecosystems shifting right before their eyes, but for a little while, a year or two max, they had control over the world around them, or maybe just the illusion of it. This episode was produced and sound designed by Jonathan Hirsch. Terrestrial is edited by Annie Aviles. Lila Cherneff is our fact checker. Kristen Lepore leads our audience development. And Augusta Chapman is our associate producer. Our managing producer is Brendan Sweeney. Our theme music is by the band Tremor. Terrestrial was developed with support from the NPR Story Lab and were produced out of KUOW in Seattle. I'm Ashley Ahern. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>